The average American worker is going to have about 12 jobs in their life. My expert opinion leads me to believe they're going to like about half of them, get health insurance from some of them, and suffer through, you know, clip art filled PowerPoints at all of them. So far, I've had so many jobs in my life, and they've each shaped me in various ways. I was uh, I was a tea sample giver outer at grocery stores, a teen bank teller, like I couldn't even really see over the marble teller pod. What do you call that? It's a counter. Oh, God. I was a phone operator at an erectile dysfunction clinic, which was, yes, a real job for money, not just for comedy. And my longest job to date was as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart from 2003 to 2015. Frankly, people in the industry like to say that I'm the longest serving correspondent in the show's history, which is nice because it makes me feel both accomplished and old. Great. Leaving The Daily Show was such a complicated career decision. It obviously had been my dream job. It paved the way for me to relocate to New York, where I was raising a family with my husband, who also happened to work with me at The Daily Show. But, you know, part of having a job, even a job that you love, means at some point, you're probably going to have to leave that job. Things are different now. And we both started getting that feeling after we'd hit the decade mark at The Daily Show. Like, nothing about the job had particularly changed, but we had changed. We had been there a long time. We were very experienced. We were busy doing other stuff, and we felt organically that we needed to make a change. So when it was announced there was going to be a regime change at the show, we knew that it was our time to move on, no matter what. It was just we were going to move on. But just because the timing was exactly right didn't mean it was an easy decision, because even when you love something, you can outgrow it. And it was our time to be challenged, I guess, by something new. My something new was my own show, Full Frontal, on TBS, which really was a startup compared to the show that I was leaving. I knew that it wouldn't have as many viewers or social media followers or Emmys in its back pocket, but at least it would be mine for however long it lasted. It would be full of my decisions, some very good decisions and some very bad decisions, but it was all mine. And after 47 years, I was ready to be in charge. And like, as soon as that show began, I knew that at some point I would leave that show as well. I mean, that is just how the the cookie crumbles. Like, in my next job, I'm definitely going to be a baker. And because the average worker is let go from some of those 12 jobs, my decision to leave Full Frontal was actually made for me. Turns out sometimes the biggest decisions like that are made by someone else. Unlike my decision to leave the erectile dysfunction clinic, that choice, like our patients, was not hard. I'm sorry. This is Choice Words. I'm Samantha B. My guest today knows firsthand how important it can be to leave a job you love when it is time to go. Alyssa Mastromonaco is a former deputy chief of staff to President Obama and current co-host of Hysteria on Crooked Media. She's also the author of two books, Who Thought This Was a Good Idea? and Other Questions You Should Have Answers To When You Work in the White House. And so here's the thing, notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut. 
Most importantly, she makes delicious jam. So take a listen and make good choices. Hello, how are you today? Sam, it is a great day because I am with you. I feel the exact same way. I don't even know where to start with you. There's so much, there's so much that we need to talk about. But primarily, there is one thing that we do need to talk about, and that is cats. All the cats, the furry cats, the rescue cats, the messed up cats, the cats with no teeth. Do you want to just do a cat-related podcast? Listen, I did a whole Instagram story about my cat Winky's adoptiversary today, and I made her a cake. What? You knew I had to. <laughs> it's That is true. Well, okay, we got a cat during the pandemic, and we named her Susan Collins because we always wanted to what? laugh. Yeah, because we always wanted to <laughs> laugh every time we said her name. And we do. That's hilarious. Every time. But she was born without a tail, so she's large and fluffy but unco- terribly uncoordinated, and she hangs from the screens. Okay, Choice Words is now... It's just a cat podcast. It's a cat podcast, and people will still love it. Everybody wants that. They do. Oh, okay. Okay. We are going to, now we're going to talk about choices, because we know that this podcast is about choices, or that's our entry point. Choices. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have so many. We have so, there are so, so many. And you have specific ones that I've heard you speak about, that I want to talk about. Oh, yeah, we'll get into it. We're going to get into it. But like, first I want to ask you just very generally. Okay. What is your, are you good at? Are you good at making decisions for yourself? Are you good at making choices? What is your path? How do you? I'm very good at making choices for myself. You've worked in high just, pressure situations. I have. I'm not going to say I haven't made some bad choices. Of course. I have. Yep. I mean, we've all made some bad choices. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think I am blessed with, and I don't know if it's the fact that I was born with IBS or what, but like <laughs> I have a real gut. You know what I mean? <laughs> My gut talks to me and okay. tells me. Mm-hmm. It's like, Alyssa, you know, this is right or wrong. Mm. And the only time my gut has wavered isn't even when my gut wavered. It's when my brain tried to intercede. Really? When did mm-hmm. that, like, can you give me an example of when that would yeah, have happened? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I was not even 35 years old. I was okay. just about to turn 35. Mm-hmm. And uh, President Barack Obama wanted to make me White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, come on, Sam. Like, come on. What the fuck? I, it was, it's like a, it was, a, but the thing is, it was a huge job. Yes. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And so I actually went to the president and was like, I have some other people for you to consider. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what on earth are you talking about? And I then went to uh, the senior counselor in the White House at the time, Pete Rouse, who had been mm-hmm. my mentor for years and years. I said, Pete, look, I just told POTUS. I told him, I think, you know, that this person would be better than me. And he said, God Damn it, Alyssa, you are the only person who thinks you can't do this job. And you know what? If I am being honest, I was I was great at the job. But at the time, I was just like, there was a certain amount of ageism. You know, people always ask me, was the White House sexist? And it's like, no, it actually, to me, felt more ageist. Oh. That I was so worried. Like, here was our first Black president. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be the one who fucked shit up? 
Like, did you want to be the person who he had faith in and Mm -hmm. then you let him down? And so that was the one time I was like, I, in my, in my gut, I think I knew I would do a good job, Mm -hmm. but in my head, I was like, you're too young. So you were trying to convince yourself. I was. That you couldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. That I shouldn't do it. That you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But you woke up and were you waking up in the night going, I really should. This isn't, I can't pass this down. Like, what did that turmoil feel like? It felt very, so luckily I had some good friends like Dan Pfeiffer who were like, buddy, yeah. what are you doing here? Like, what what are you even thinking about? Right. Who, and and it, actually, I think he's the one who put it to me best. He's like, um, whoever you're putting forward for this job mm-hmm. is just going to ultimately come back to you and ask questions. Like, you're the one who knows how all this stuff works. Right. And so you're being ridiculous. Right. And ultimately, I was like, you know what? I just had to go into my deep my my dark place where I was like, you know what? I would be really fucking mad if someone came and was like asking me questions for right. a job that I could have had and then I turned down. But it was it was also the stuff that I kind of had known about myself that I'm actually a very creative person, mm-hmm. which is what makes me good at operational things because I think I can think creatively about solutions. Right. And so I was like, Alyssa, what are you going to do? But that was the one time I almost derailed myself. You almost derailed yourself. Thank I'm I did. so glad that you didn't. You know what? I am I'm glad I didn't too. <laughs> How long did you wrestle with this? This is like this is a this is a, a biggie. Oh of smallies and biggies. In, this is a biggie. In my brain, it felt like months. Mm-hmm. In reality, I mean things in the White House move so quickly. In yeah. reality, it was probably two or three weeks. Okay. Maybe two weeks. Okay. Maybe two weeks. How did you decide to join like a young Barack Obama senatorial campaign? What made you take a gamble on a candidate? like Barack Obama? Was it just... So you know what's funny, Sam, is that when I was in college, I was at the University of Vermont, Mm -hmm. and this, uh, you know, college back then, I don't know what it's like now. I just know what I see on Bama Rush TikTok, and I'm like, this is very removed from my experience. But uh, (laughs) You didn't have the the Bama Rush experience at the University of Vermont? I did not. I did not. What I did have was uh, a socialist, who, by the way, I think was roughly the same age I am now, uh, coming to my dorm to talk about voting, and his name was Bernie Sanders. And <sighs> I was not in the uh, I was not in the let's do politics thing. Yeah, but I could not get enough of him in a state like Vermont, which I think a lot of people don't understand is actually quite a poor state, or at least it well it, it is now, but it really was back then. I couldn't believe what he could get done for people in a week. I ended up being an intern. He's who he I was an intern in Vermont. I was an intern in DC. Yeah. And the funny thing is when I saw Barack Obama, uh, when I met him for the first time, which was in like December of 2004, mm-hmm. it was the first time I felt like there was someone as in tune to what people needed as Bernie Sanders was. And so wow. I said, you know what? And I had just come off the Kerry campaign, the John Kerry for president campaign. Mm-hmm. I was devastated. We lost. And yeah. Sam, I was like, listen, junior senator from Illinois, Barack Hussein Obama, never going to run for president. I'll never be disappointed uh, <laughs> and, and brokenhearted again. And that's actually why I felt like this would be such an, I thought it would be such an adventure to right. work with someone who would rather, unlike so many politicians in Washington, D.C., who will poll test and focus group everything that they're going to say, he didn't care. I mean, he's like, I'd rather lose being me than win being poll tested and being fed words to speak. I feel that I have to close my eyes and do a meditation as you say those words, because I feel that that is so rare. That is I know. 
so increasingly rare. Listen, when we decided, when he, when we, there was a small group of us who helped him decide whether to run for president. Mm -hmm. And it was the reason I picked up and moved to Chicago. Because I'm like, first of all, we were all like, we'll be here for six months. Right. Um, right. But we're like, come on, he's running against Hillary. Like, we're going to be fine. We'll be home in our D.C. apartments in no time. Mm -hmm. But it really was that, like, you know, leave it all on the field type vibes. Like, we're just yeah. going to be ourselves. And he accepted us entirely as we were. And, and you know— we just gave him 100%. There's something about the human brain that just can sniff out inauthenticity so quickly. And when you know, oh, yeah. like when you know that someone is speaking just from the heart or extemporaneously, or that these are just their true values and they can just pour out so effortlessly, it's so relaxing to the brain. It is. You know who is like that? You just had her on your podcast, Big Gretch over in Michigan. Gretchen I love her. Whitmer. Big Gretch. Oh, I love the Gretch. Big Gretch. Yeah. 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 She does that too. She unspooled. Having a conversation with her, I felt unspooled my brain. Yeah. She gets it. She yeah. totally gets it. We'll be right back with Alyssa Mastromonaco after this. No, okay. Well, let's talk about your decision to leave the White House. Sure. That's interesting, too, because it's really hard to leave a job that's oh my God. incredibly prestigious. Oh, I yeah. assume unbelievably rewarding. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you literally have to. I mean, what was that like? So going into the 2012 election, our, uh -huh. our reelect was unbelievably stressful. Yeah. We had one, we had a, you know, we, we had a real race against Mitt Romney mm -hmm. and Hurricane Sandy happened. And yeah. that was my, uh, I was in charge of response and recovery to natural disasters. I coordinated the interagency. You remember how bad that was. Oh, it was so bad. I was, I was sleeping two hours a night. I was, I mean, Sam, the president said to me, uh, you're either going to be a hero or I'm going to have to fire you because there was going to be no in-between. Right. Either I was going to, I mean, like, and there are people from the campaign, because I was obviously in the White House, people from the campaign who would be like, uh, Alyssa, like, you know, like, you can't fuck this up. And it's uh, like, right. oh, you can die. <laughs> like, like, thank you so much for that information. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't realize the stakes were high. Thank you. But like, you realize that you have really sort of garnered uh, people's attention when like the Treasury Secretary and DHS, they're all sitting in the office and they're like, okay, Alyssa, tell us what to do. Right. Um, I was 10 o'clock at night disbanding treaties from the 1800s so that like ships could get into New York Harbor and bring us gasoline. Like okay. I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to the inauguration in January of 13, which I also sort of oversaw, I had no gas in the tank. I was totally done. Right. And I said to the president, I said, look, I am no good if I'm not giving you 150%. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what you need. I think it's time for me to go. And he was like, listen, take a vacation. You need to recharge. And I was like, okay. And Sam, the vacation never happened. Yeah. But when you're in the White House, it's like you end up in the middle of like the biggest things. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I can't leave now. Like, you, like there are people, I'm not going to name names. There are people who have occupied the White House who I don't think were really waking up every morning being like, things depend on me, you know? <laughs> that, like, I'm having a trauma response right now. Yes, 
Yes. And I, we all deeply felt that, right? Mm -hmm. And so finally, uh, there came a point when I was, uh, I was in my office. I was having a conversation with David Pluff, who had been our campaign manager at this point. He was senior advisor. Uh And uh, he looks at my computer and he's like, you're not typing because I was a real multitasker. I could type and talk to someone at the same time. Right. He's like, you're not typing any words. And I looked at the computer and I was like, oh my God. And I had been like forgetting my keys and all this kind of stuff. And um, I just burst. He left my office. I burst into tears. Uh, the way my office was set up, my uh, my wall, one of my walls didn't go all the way to the top. So my assistant could hear everything that was happening. Okay. And he comes in and he's like, uh, Alice, I, I called you. I've got you an appointment down at the medical unit. Like, it's okay. And so they did a couple tests on me mm-hmm. and it turned out that I was exceedingly sleep deprived. <laughs> oh, okay. Exceedingly. And so ultimately, I just decided that I was not... Uh, I'd, I'd given all I had to give. You know, it had been right. almost 10 years and it was it was time. I, I helped, you know, I think that if you're in an organization and you're managing something, uh, we always kind of operated in the like get hit by a bus theory. Right. You know, if you got hit by a bus, everything should go on without you. You're not a hero if everything falls apart. It doesn't mean that you were very special. It means you were a very bad manager. Right, right. And so I uh, I decided to leave in May of 2014. And Sam, if I thought the, the idea of getting ready to leave, mm-hmm. like when you leave, there's this whole process, right? You get read out, in air quotes, uh, read yeah. out of your security clearance. So the, so the uh, Office of Security comes in and they read me out. They go to take your badge, right? Mm. And I just burst into tears. Yeah. And I'm like, I go, I bet this happens all the time. And they were like, actually, no. I was like, really? (laughs) They're like, we don't know what to do with a crying person. They did not know what to do with me. And I like busied myself. You know, my my friend Dan Pfeiffer was taking my office and I like set it up for him because I'm like, this is going to make me feel okay. And when I went out to drive, I mean, Sam, it was like my last trip with the president, all the Secret Service guys sort of reported to me and, you know... In, on TV shows, you always hear them talking over the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, can I can I do that for my last car ride? Um. And they were like, yeah, of course. And so the president's uh, code name was Renegade. And when you'd arrive at the White House, they'd say, Renegade arrives, Renegade arrives. And they let me say, Renegade arrives. Um. And then in like the most cinematic, I get in my red Ford Escape covered in stickers. Yeah. And I drive out onto Pennsylvania Avenue through the Iron Gates, right? right? Like, and all the tourists and all the Secret Service agents are clapping. It was like some Rudy level shit, wow. you know? And then I just sobbed for days. I mean, days. I really did. And then on Tuesday, I started my career of watching HGTV all day. <laughs> I can't believe that. That is so, that must be, because I can't like remember when you're in a flurry of activity and then everything goes quiet, it's like being on a beach and listening to a seashell. Yeah. But it is very hard to make that transition from high adrenaline and like... That's it. Cortisol spikes all the time to like... They actually think... the One of the doctors told me, they think by the time I left, I had something, I don't know if it's real or something they made up to make me feel good, that I had like adrenaline toxicity, that I'd been running on it for so long yeah. that I just kind of went off a cliff. And, you know, David Axelrod, who I know you know, after I wrote about this in my book, mm-hmm. he was like, Alyss, I wish we had talked about this. Like, I wish we, because the same thing kind of happened to him. Right. That you just really 
Because you think, Sam, you think when you leave that the next day they're going to call you and be like, girl, we miss you so much. Can you tell us X, Y, and Z? But the phone doesn't ring. If you did your job right, the phone does not ring. ring. And so it was was a really tough time. How in the world, and, you know, our former president accepted Mm. that he does not belong in this category, how does any... L- president literally endure the experience of being president. Like you have to be a, a bit of a psycho, right? Like you have to. You, I think you either have to have really incredible perspective, mm-hmm. which I think President Obama did have, that right. he understood you take everything piece by piece. There are the fights you're going to fight. There are the fights that are not worth fighting. Right. Um. But I mean, it is, I mean, it is like nonstop. Like you come in, I'm yeah. Sam, one morning I wake up and uh, as deputy chief, I had this uh, like apparatus in my very tiny bedroom mm-hmm. that was a secure phone, a secure computer. It made my bedroom so hot and I run hot. So it was like very hard for me. Right. And it's like you wake up in the middle of the night and the situation room is on the phone and they're like, ma'am, there's a nuclear meltdown in Fukushima. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? You just, there is not, and just when you think something else is happening, something else is going to happen because it's America. It's the world. It's the world. Everything is happening all the time. How long did it take for you before you were ready to do more work? Like, at what point did you start writing your book? Like, how long did it take before you were able to get the gears going again? You know, I had, as I was leaving the White House, I did an hour-long interview on Charlie Rose. Mm-hmm. And Hachette actually reached out to me. Mm-hmm. And it the story, is, as I remember, was the niece of the woman who was the president of 12, the imprint under Hachette at the time, uh-huh. uh, she said to her aunt, this is, I want to hear more people like her. And they reached out to me. And I think that I had my book deal by like June, you know, and I started writing it. Yeah. And of course, because again, type A, Sure, I start writing it and it was bad. It was so bad because you know what? I was trying to sound not important, but I was trying to sound serious. Right. (laughs) And you can be a, you can be like a, uh, like I had a good, you know, important job. It doesn't mean I have to sound any different than the way I sound when I'm talking to you right now. Right. And that's what it took me, I'd say almost a year to really understand that if anybody was ever going to read my book, they were only going to read it if I sounded like me. So that took a long time. Right, right. And how long did it take you to write the book? Two two years. Oh, two years. About two years. How mm-hmm. many versions of it did you throw out? Two, two. Oh, two God. full versions where I was like, Oh my God, who is this? You know what, Sam? It's like what we were just talking about. The first version sounded utterly inauthentic. Right, right. It just, it was, I was like, who is this person? I was like, no. And so luckily Hachette was into sort of this like youngish at the time woman who had done big things, but was kind of a hot mess from a small town, you know? Right, right, right. Everybody just wants to hear the real goods. Everybody just wants to hear the real goods. They do. Do you, I have read that you, say that every component of a good decision is contingent on your ability to take care of yourself. But how, it doesn't sound like you were (laughs) super taking care of yourself or. Well, at the time I thought I was. Oh, you You know, now I do much more so since Mm -hmm. I have left. At the time I thought that um, going to Pilates at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday and Sunday (laughs) was ideal. Now, the truth is I had had back problems at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it did help me. Okay. Um, 
you know, I always made sure I was home to watch, you know, like girls on Sunday night and rape, you know, those were, there were certain things that I looked forward to throughout the week that I was like, I'm going to do this. That is true. You have to draw lines for yourself and you cannot, you cannot cross those things. No. And that's in a way, you know, I do think that we kind of like overuse the concept of self-care. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's important, but also it's not the most important thing. But maybe right. maybe drawing lines for yourself is the most important thing. I think there's like real self-care and then there's Instagram self-care. And yes. Instagram self-care is not my cup of tea, but... Very different. Understanding when I am exhausted or overtaxed and don't have mm-hmm. the bandwidth to be around other people to me is the best thing I can do for myself. I like that you mentioned girls because I just, I love, I love girls so fucking much. And I yes. feel like it's really worth a rewatch. I rewatched the whole thing during the pandemic. I was so like, did I, I got to re, I got to get back into this show. It's so, it's beautiful. <laughs> I think, and I think back when we were in the White House Girls was on and then Veep was on right mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. And we would come in the next morning. It'd be hilarious. We'd see Joe Biden, who at that point was vice president, and be yeah. like, mm, were you on the phone with JLD? Were you talking to Julie Louis? Because that episode hit close to home. You know, it was, uh, those were the things I think that we all kind of looked forward to. They were our appointment viewing and we would all talk about it on Monday morning. There's more with Alyssa Mastromonaco in just a moment. I'm sure everybody asks you this, but how are you feeling uh, in the current uh, political climate? And do you tire of telling people to vote? I do. I wish that people would do it. (laughs) You know what? It's you know, what's so hard is that like when something bad happens, for example, when Roe was overturned last summer Mm -hmm. and people get on, uh, you know, podcasts and cable news and they're like, everyone has to vote. And it feels so fucking hollow, you know, like, yeah, of course, man. But voting isn't going to change. That is not going to change things immediately right now. That is, I think, the hard part. But yes, I really just wish people would vote. I really wish they would. And I wish that it was not the end stop for a lot of people. I know. It's like, oh, I, 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 that's all I'm going to do. I did it. Well, and let me say, I really feel that way about, like, you know, people who, like, I always think of when we did GOTV and even back, you know, when I had left the White House and I did more GOTV. Look, if some person who is working a nine-to-five job or two nine-to-five jobs and they make time to vote, mm-hmm. that is great. People who have more flexibility, those are the people I feel like, shame on you, you should be doing more. <laughs> you know, there are some people who only have the bandwidth to get out and vote, sure. you know, once a year. Mm-hmm. And to that, I say thank you so much, especially if you live in Georgia. Um but but it's the other people who just like are very performative on Instagram. And mm-hmm. I just I'm like, okay, but like, did you did you vote? Did you not just vote in the presidential? Did you vote in the midterms? Did you vote for your school board? Because Sam, that's the big problem. Republicans have been grassrooting elections yes. for a long time. And they have the state legislatures and they have the school boards. And so those are uh those are the elections that we really gotta make time to get out for. A really, really long time. Like school board takeover. Oh yeah. I mean, it's there's there's a playbook. Like there's like 
10 steps. Yeah. It's like, it's very clear. And a successful because they have successful. done some real damage in the last five, 10 years. Extremely high amounts of damage, unlike our cats who are sweet and cuddly. And I want to. Except they do do them. damage, but it's usually fixable. <laughs> do you ever get sick of the feeling that every election is the most important election? I feel like every. Yes. Like from a. From a complete outsider, like just from someone working in a comedy show for 20 years in the world of politics. And like every election had the every highest. Every election is the most, the important. most important. And the and the truth is, I, I painfully, mm-hmm. I do think as the years go on, it's like not, not true. You yeah. Know? Like, like 2020 was vitally important. And then 2022 was vitally important. So Sam, this is the most important election. This is the most important election of all time. I swear to God, I can see my own image in the Zoom and I flushed. I start, I turned all red. Look. I got shiny. Yeah, we're both stressing. Okay, so tell me, okay, you Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. are working at Bed by Eight Productions, which is the most... First of all, I love your podcast. I love Hysteria. It's great. Thank you so and much. Erin is incredible. Mm-hmm. I, she's amazing. Bed by Eight is the best name of any production company ever. Are you in Bed by Eight? I am. If I'm not. We are all. So the podcast, uh, so not the podcast, the production company yeah. is George Stephanopoulos, Allie Wentworth, yeah. and myself. Yeah. And honestly, George is on GMA, so he's 100% in Bed by 100%. Eight. 100%. And if I am being honest, I am not far behind. I love, there's nothing I love more than being horizontal within the eight. I agree. Feet, my mom has a saying, ginks up. It means your feet are up and you're relaxing. Mm-hmm. And in the eight o'clock hour, my ginks have to be up. My ginks have to be up. My ginks have to be up. I know. And I feel that you, you are a person who gives no fucks. You give no fucks. Yes, yeah, pretty much it. When did that begin for you? How did you, how did you find that in yourself? You know, Honestly, as I got older, mm-hmm. that's just the truth. You know, I think that it's funny because we talked about a little bit before about Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. And during this whole thing, I mean, Sam, I was in the same puffer vest and corduroy pants walking into the White House every single day. Right. And I was like, I've got this. Like, I mean, not like I never rested on my laurels, but I was like, you you can do th- you are doing this you yeah. know and from that point on i think i was like you know what i'm going to say what i think mm-hmm. and if people don't agree with me that's fine that's fine but i am never going to wear uh spanks again i am going to grow out my hair as i want to grow it out i'm going to let it go gray i am going to be myself and the truth is that like after because you know when we were in the white house there was a blog a blog back in the early days Mm -hmm. that would attack how myself and the other deputy chief at the time nancy ann would dress really and i was like oh my god like i again the whole idea like i cannot bring shame upon this president you know and so began you know, some form, not always, mm-hmm. but some pantyhose, some spanks. I wore more skirts than I normally ever would have. I put makeup on. Sam, I do not wear makeup. That is <laughs> not my thing. And I tried to play a part, at least aesthetically. Right. right? And like now, I just am never going to do anything where the way I am is not okay to walk in the room. That's right. just how I feel. Right, right. I love that. And there that. are enough people who are down with that. 
that you don't have to be with people who are like, mm, could you do that like a little differently? <laughs> no. I would love it if you just could like polish it, polish it a little bit. Do you hair in a bun? Do you have pumps? It's like, no, I have Birkenstocks and clogs, loads of clogs, so many clogs. I lo- although I will say that I have a young teen daughter and she mm-hmm. keeps looking at me and just going like, just analyzing my, f- I feel her analyzing my face sometimes. Uh, for what? Just for flaws, just things that could be improved. You know what? You know how I feel? I look at like, what was the, it was maybe two years ago, last year, whenever that movie Nomadland came out with oh, Frances yeah. McDormand. Yeah. I was like, you know what? That's my vibe. <laughs> I want Frances McDormand accepted. Yeah. It was either an Emmy or no, it was like a Golden Globe or an Oscar. And she had no makeup on. Yeah. And I'm like, that's it. That's she, it. No one respects her any less. Mm-hmm. There are people who love it. And you know what? Go with God. Enjoy yourself. But yeah. I just, you know, when I am made up, you know, like the day I got married, my hairdresser was like, don't you want to do something special? And I was like, no. And he talked me into like putting my hair up. <gasps> and I just, I went home and I cried. I just redid my hair because we were, we got married, blessedly, at the Supreme Court. Elena mm-hmm. Kagan married us. Oh. So we did not have a wedding. Mm-hmm. It was just me and him. And I wore a blue dress and it was like, you know, totally simple. But like, even that was just like a lesson. It's like, why didn't you listen to your gut? Like, you know how you like to look. You like to look like yourself, even if that means you are not very glamorous on your wedding day. I feel like at the age of, I'm 53, I'm turning 54 in the fall. And I feel like it maybe took 52 years Mm -hmm. to understand that no one's ever going to tell me to put my hair up in a tight bun again. Ever. Ever in my life. It can't, it should not be done no, it will never be done again. It hurts. It hurts. It, hurts. it looks. I look like, like I don't have hair. I look. It's terrible. I look, I look silly. I look silly. I feel embarrassed. Yes, I feel like same. shame the whole like time. Like you're in a costume. Like I'm in a costume. Like I'm wearing mm-hmm. a, a woman suit, begging for people to love me. I actually just donated because I had a lot of. There was a time at doing television where I mm-hmm. obviously. Wore Spanx because you were like, oh, I have to wear yeah, Spanx. You wear Spanx, and then at some point during the show, I stopped wearing them, and I was like, I will never. I cannot. I just don't. No. I, like I, I don't give a shit. I don't care. No one, and also no one cares. No one cares, and it it doesn't feel good. Like you're conscious of yeah. it the whole time, and the people who care aren't gonna like me anyway. So it doesn't matter. I'm like not gonna win. That was the other thing I realized. Yeah. That there there was no group of people I was like, what, bringing to my social media feed if I acted any different than no, who I am. No, exactly. And I just donated them all. I had like a huge box of it in my garage. I bet you did. I did. Yeah, I mean. A huge box of shapewear with tags, like tags on. And I just donated it. I was like, please go with God. If you love shapewear, please enjoy this. Have a, enjoy and have a second life someplace else. <laughs> Have a second life, turn into something useful, like maybe, you know, like a like hairnets for cats. I don't know. Fishing equipment. Yeah, oh, my it's God. All... <laughs> fishing equipment. It's perfect. It's like a gill net on the show alone. I don't know. <laughs> it's for you to decide. Um, we, I want to not only is this podcast about uh, cats, it's also about jam. Yeah. Ugh. It's really a food and cat based podcast disguised as like other interesting topics but i fucking love jam i make jam but you sell jam what kind do you make what's your favorite 
I do sell jam. I make a sour cherry jam. Do you have, how do you pit? How do you do the pits? I have a pitter. I have a, well, usually I just do it by hand. Is it like a big pitter? No, it's or hand. It's like a five. It's, a, it's just a single. Oh! It's, I mean, I'm small. I'm not, I don't sell my jam. I just give it away, but like, oh, but still. you know, I just have like a single pitter. And then usually I just go, oh, fuck it. Like, I just do it with my fingers. Then my fingers get all stained. But sour cherry yeah. is my yeah, favorite. Yeah. Apricot, close. I love Making jam. When did you do you jam. cook everything you love to cook, or you specifically love the meditation? I specifically I love the meditation. Mm-hmm. It was so years and years ago. I would get really stressed mm-hmm. about the end of summer, and what's the end of summer? Peaches, right? Yes. And so there's this woman who, by the way, I made it my life's mission to make her my friend. Oh, she was like the most real deal, serious farm stand farmer. Uh, her name's Nancy. Okay. She, uh, I would go and I'd get the peaches and I would like kind of tell her my life story. And she was like, fucking pull yourself together. You know what I mean? She was like, <laughs> and I was like, like, oh, I get so sad at the end of the summer. Yeah, and- she's like, we just live this way. Just fucking preserve it. It's fine. Right. We've been doing she's it forever. She's like, uh, have you ever thought about preserving it? And I was mm-hmm. like, no. And of course, being me, I then do ages of research about sure. how to preserve. And I find this like pioneer-inspired recipe because mm-hmm. sugar was really expensive for the pioneers. And I don't like jam that's too sweet. Me too. And so I followed this recipe where you probably use like half as much sugar, but mm-hmm. you bring it to a boil and then you let the, the jam cool to room temperature and the water evaporates, the natural pectin comes out and like you don't have to use nearly as much sugar, nor do you have to use pectin. Mm -hmm. And so I started just making jam and then, but like just like jam that was like in the basement. You know, I just made it, I canned it, I put it in the basement. Yeah. And then uh, my friend Mona Talbot, who is a chef, she has a big shop in town. She's like, "Um, this is excellent. Do you want to be our jam maker? And I was like, what? And Sam... I am like, listen, it is like, I am, I feel like the mafia, the fruit mafia. I'm like, all right, I'm going to Nancy. When we went to, my husband and I went on our first vacation in forever. Mm-hmm. I was so stressed about missing black raspberry season <laughs> that Nancy was like, listen, I'm going to freeze them if we have them. Cause we had a terrible fruit shortage up here this year because of an early thaw in February mm-hmm. and then a late freeze in May, we lost all of our stone fruit and like loads of other things. Mm. She's like, I'll freeze it. I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. And at one point last summer, so this summer I have not made nearly that much jam, but last summer I think I made over 2,000 jars and it was at Eli's Bars on 3rd Avenue. It was at Talbot and Arding. It was at Max Morning Star Farms. It was like, I had it everywhere and I loved it, Sam. I felt so accomplished. I love this so much. I felt so accomplished. Only podcasts on, no television while I'm making jam. Yeah. I buy, I get the fruit all local mm-hmm. or I pick some. Sometimes I pick it myself. Okay. I get out there. I'm like, let's get those Concord grapes. Mm-hmm. Concord grapes are the only thing my husband will come out in the uh, vineyard, the whatever it is, whatever yeah. The, yeah. the orchard for. Because he's like, okay, this is adorable. Like she's the same size as the vines. You know, and I'm oh. just like under there getting the Concord grapes. And... I can it myself. I label yeah. it myself. I do the whole thing. It is uh, it is the best thing I could do for my mental health, truly. It helps me focus because I have anxiety, you know, which I didn't realize right. when I was in the White House. I just channeled my anxiety into being great at my job. Mm-hmm. And then when you leave, you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And so right. I 
make jam. I'm going to have to send you some. You have to tell me your favorite fruits. You know what? I'm going to send, okay, you. if you send me jam. Okay, are we going to do a jam exchange? No, I'm going to send you a jar of honey from my <gasps> honeybees that are in my backyard. Oh my God, this is, do you know what's happening right now? We are living my dream, which is baby boom. I am JC Wyatt, you're JC yes. Wyatt. Okay, we're in Vermont, there's a Wagoneer involved yeah. and we, it, country baby is happening. I just got flushed again. Right? <laughs> For good reasons. <laughs> I got I turned all red and got excited. Uh, this is it. I, I, I don't have any more questions for you because all I really wanted to talk about was jamming cats. Me too. <laughs> this was great. I have enjoyed this so thoroughly. I feel rejuvenated. I'm sweaty. Yes. Me too. I'm a little like, little schwitzy. And you know what? It's not a perimenopausal uh, no. hot flash. This is no. legitimate like, like... I don't even know how to say I'm like, oh my God, should we date? Like that's how yeah. I feel. Well, I feel like I just met my my fruit and honey and sugar match in yeah, life. That's like, it. We're I soulmates. Like soulmates. We're 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 sugar in all its forms, soulmates. Food podcast. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's yeah. it. That's us. That's us. Okay. Thank you so much. This was incredible. Thank you. This was so much fun. Oh gosh. That was Alyssa Mastromonaco, and I had no choice but to look up one thing. She said back in pioneer days, there wasn't a lot of jam making because sugar was so expensive. I love jam, so I had to check that out. And yes, it's true. Sugar was prohibitively expensive, and people often used sorghum in its place. Samantha B., not a fan of sorghum. I have to admit that to you today. Anyway, thank you so much to Alyssa for joining me. And good news, there's more choice words with Lemonada Premium. Subscribers get exclusive access to bonus content like a rapid-fire round of trivia questions based on my recent interview with Bob the Drag Queen. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Choice Words, which was created by and is hosted by me. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Svia Baron-Reinstein, and Chrissy Pease produce our show. Our mix is by James Sparber. Steve Nelson is the vice president of Weekly Content. Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I are executive producers. Our theme was composed by Scylla Shaman with help from Johnny Vince Evans. You can find me at RealSamB on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Choice Words wherever you get your podcasts or listen ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. 